Let's pray together. Father, we come to you maybe having had a really terrific week and feeling like we're on top of the world and maybe having um, a week filled with trials and our, our hearts came needing to have sang that song. Let me hide myself in you, O Lord. And God, there are so many times where that is exactly what we need, and yet we don't, we don't go there very naturally. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would see how great of a God you are, how mighty you are, the work you can do in us, and what can come out of that. We lift these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Being a pastor, I've, I've had the, the privilege for several weddings to have the best seat in the house, so to speak, um, although I'm not sitting. And, and to be the one who, who gets to guide couples through their vows of commitment as they, as they start to they start this relation, they start this completely new chapter in life where their identity changes in the moment of that worship service. And they, the vows that we traditionally think of in sickness and in health and good times and is bad for richer, for poorer, it's this total commitment. And I've had some couples who have written their own vows and some couples who have used the traditional vows and never, ever have I had a couple where one of the people came and said, all right, here's my vows that I'm willing to commit to. I will love this person on months ending in R when they do not have a head cold and as long as I'm in a good mood. I've never had someone come and make those vows or try to make those vows. On that day, the vows that are made are to the whole person. I'm going to love all of who this person is. And I'm going to cherish and commit myself to all of who this person is. And it is a total commitment. Unfortunately, there are many who would say the words of the vows while only holding to some sort of conditional version. Where they would say, well, I will love and honor and cherish this person as long as it suits my needs. Unfortunately, a similar conditionality can be found among some who claim to be Christians. But they're not willing to either proclaim or live under the full lordship of Christ. That they want a Savior who will save them and then let them be. Oh Lord, come and wash me or I die. Forgive me of my sins, but don't ask me to change my life. Is the, the faith that many actually profess by their lifestyles. It is an incomplete view of Jesus. It leads people to saying things like, the Lord just accepts me for who I am. He doesn't need me to change. Or God and I are cool. Or anything else that puts some sort of distance between the saving work of Christ 
that unifies us with God the Father, and the sanctifying work of the Lord that purges us of sin, that leads us into a life of repentance. It pushes off and keeps at arm's length any real accountability because they haven't let, yet learned the joy and freedom that can be found in true repentance. But it also wants to keep them in charge of things of their lives. Well, I want to argue this morning from the text that Jesus is not a Savior who is content to sit by and let us live however we want, but that He demands from us fruitfulness and purity. And He requires this of His people. And we're going to see in the text this morning, not only that He requires it from His people, but that He enables it through the Gospel. He enables the fruitfulness and the purity that He requires. And what we need to do to get there is to look at all of who Jesus is. To not just be content to say, oh, he was this humble, meek guy that taught with children on his lap, fed the crowds, and humbly died on the cross. Yes, all of that is true. And he is the Lord of creation. He is the lovingly, compassionate, and perfectly holy Savior. He sits on the throne of grace and will tread the winepress of God's wrath. He is gentle and fierce, the suffering servant and the destroyer of death. He is the Lamb who was slain and the Lion of Judah. And as we draw near to the crucifixion through the book of Mark, we clearly see a complete view of the Savior who is both merciful and uncompromising. He saves and He shapes. And He is unwilling to leave what is undesirable unchanged. Let's read the text. We're starting in verse 12. This is a weird story a little bit. And so some of you, uh, especially if you just love trees, are going to struggle today. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs, season four figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking for a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said, answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus is the Holy Lord and gracious Savior. And as both, he requires fruitfulness and purity. And what we see here is that it is a fruitfulness that is not dependent on physical circumstances, is what he requires. Because, uh, and, and this is important because there's so many times where we would be excuse-driven of, well, you know, I wasn't really fruitful, you know, it was a bad week. But let's look at this tree, because this tree is not just any tree. This tree is a picture of the people of Israel, particularly how they are using the temple and the, and the structure of the text without getting too hermeneutically geeky on you. It points to this, because, and, and I'm just going to lay this out real quick. We have temple, or we have tree, temple, tree, and then a teaching point down at the end. This is a, a fun chiastic structure for us, so that, that's... I'm going to end the geekiness there and just go into the text. So this tree is pointing to the people and pointing to the temple. And at first, a reader may lead you to think that Jesus wanted to be a lumberjack of sorts but forgot his axe, and that in his power he randomly afflicted a, afflicted a tree with some divine version of Roundup. But that is not the case. The Lord is not careless with his power. He is not excessive or wasteful. He is wise and deliberate. And so to us as, as Western readers who live in a climate that does not support fig trees, this seems a bit weird. And, but before we move on and think that Jesus carelessly got mad at this tree because it didn't have a fig when it wasn't supposed to have a fig, let's look and see what's going on. This tree is in leaf. It looks healthy. You can see it from a distance. Look at all those green leaves. It's early in the season. You, you notice leaves a lot more in March and April than you do this time of year. By this time of year, all you do is dread when they fall. But here, this is an exciting thing. Here's a fig tree. It's in leaf. Let's see if there's anything to eat. But the fig tree is not in season. Now, it wouldn't have had figs as we think of them, but it would have had, if it was a healthy tree, it would have had baby figs or what they're actually called, knops, K-N-O-P-S. And it's, it's kind of like a prefig. It's edible. It's not as good as a fig, but you can eat it. And a lot of times they, they start forming even before the leaves come. So to see a fig tree in leaf, it would have been safe to assume that there would have been these knops all over. And if someone looking for a light snack along the road, it would have, they should have been available. It was leafy but without fruit. It looked healthy and had no fruit, no true life or production. And that idea is what I want you to hold on to. Looking healthy 
without any real life in it. It is all leaf and no substance. It looks great from a distance, but when you get close to it, you realize there's something really wrong inside. The Lord made his people and his creation to be fruitful. He created the nation of Israel to bear fruit. In the Old Testament, and we'll see this in a couple weeks, or actually next week, the Lord compares his people to a vineyard. Jesus told the disciples that bearing fruit is essential in the life of the believer, and it cannot happen apart from him. Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply. The church is given a similar sort of command in Acts. And the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives. But this tree, while looking very alive and very healthy from a distance, has something really wrong with it. And so Jesus says to it, may no one ever eat of you again. He didn't make a big show of it, but the disciples heard it. And I want us to rethink a little bit how we define fruitfulness. And when is the right time to be fruitful? Because the Savior came to this tree, and as the Lord of creation, he demanded fruit, and there wasn't any. And sometimes we confuse fruitfulness with worldly success. But our fruitfulness as believers often comes in times of our greatest weakness and our greatest struggle, as his power is made perfect in our weakness. And as our trials lead to growth and develop character that produces hope, the Lord calls for and requires fruitfulness. J.C. Ryle says it would be good that everyone who is content with a reputation for being alive when in reality they are dead would only see their own faces in the mirror of this passage. The Lord requires fruitfulness and purity. And so we see that this comes with, it's not dependent on our physical circumstances, it's dependent on the Lord working in our life, it's dependent on us clinging to Christ, and it's dependent on good religion. With the curse of the fig tree freshly in their minds, they enter the temple, and Jesus goes crazy. And there's many of you with the WWJD bracelets that have been waiting for this moment. Because one of the options is flipping tables and chasing people with whips. And you're thinking, I was made for this. Maybe you were, and that scares me. But Jesus comes into the temple, and this is a temple. This is the week of Passover. It is hustling and bustling. This is a church with its parking lot packed. It is a busy, busy place. It looks great. There's people getting animals, acquiring animals to offer as sacrifices. There's people who have made this long journey for this all-important holy week in their faith. And they're coming together, and Jesus comes in. He's immediately displeased by what he sees, and he goes nuts. He's flipping over tables. He's of the money changers and the seats of those who are selling pigeons. Now this money changing, people are coming from all over and they need the right currency for the temple. So they're saying, well, you give me some of yours, I'm going to give you some of mine. I got to have a fee to, you know, to have my shop set up here. And they're ripping off the worshipers of God. And then notice the pigeons. 
Why would people be buying pigeons in the temple on the week of Passover? And the answer is found in, in the law. It's because they were too poor to buy the sheep for their sacrifices. And so there's this racketeering happening that is targeting the poorest. Not to target them in a way that would say, let us help you worship God and be right before God, but targeting them in a way that says, oh, you have a real need. I'm going to exploit your need. I'm going to exploit your vulnerability for my own profit, and I'm going to create an extra barrier between you and the Lord. And then he says that he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That word anything is also translated in many versions of the Bible as merchandise. People buying special pots and t-shirts that say, I heart the temple. It's in, they found them in, in some archaeological research. Um, I'm sure they will. But what you see here is money changers, the targeting of the poor, and the marketing of faith. And it displeases our Lord. So Jesus was teaching them. And I think a lot of times when we, we read this passage, we forget that Jesus is trying to teach the people. And in teaching the people, he's condemning the leaders who have not only allowed this, but structured it and built it to what it is. And he says, this is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. The whole point of the temple is to draw the world to the Lord. That the nations around would say, there's a God in Israel, and he's worthy of my worship, and I'm going to give it to him. But what you've done is you've put barriers in front of every single person who's come in and they're not worshiping and you've taken what should be worship and prayer and making God accessible and making him reachable through sacrifice and prayer and what you've done is you've clouded it with greed and your worldliness has overrun the purpose of the temple. They are not looking after orphans and widows in their distress. They are not keeping themselves unpolluted from the world. But they are targeting the vulnerable to take advantage of them. And they are letting their greed be their compass. And not the purpose that God has for his house. This is not simply unfruitful worship. This is counterfruitful worship. It's busy. It looks good from a distance in the temple, but it is far from the heart of God. It looks good from a distance. Look at all those leaves, and you get up, and there's no fruit to show for it. It did not draw people to God. It did not reflect who the Lord of grace and the Lord of mercy is. And I know a lot of people, and maybe you're one of them, who have been really hurt by churches who mix worldly greed into worship. Churches who target the vulnerable instead of enabling them to walk with God. 
And I want you to know that God is angry about it too. That He recognizes it as a great injustice. And that the purpose of coming together to the Lord is to cry out to Him, not just as one people, but as one of all peoples, that all the nations would be able to cry out to Him. A couple observations from the text here. This is an all-day affair. Jesus enters in the morning and He leaves in the evening. This is not a five-minute flip over a couple tables, chase a couple people out, yell a couple sentences, and walk away. This was an all-day affair. Secondly, when the holiness of God confronts the unholiness of humanity, it can be greatly unpopular. As the chief priests are now seeking a way to destroy Jesus. We've got to do something about this guy. But it's not just unpopular with these kind of vague chief priests off in the distance. The changing work of God that confronts sin can be very unpopular within our own hearts. When the Lord comes to correct our own impurity, our own bad religion, calls us to a right walk with Him, sometimes that can be really unpopular with us. And oh, how much better it would have been had the chief priest been like, you know what, you're totally right. And repented. What a great day of worship that would have resulted in and revival. And let us not withhold God's work in our heart by being so resistant to it ourselves. So Jesus is the Holy Lord and the gracious Savior. As both, He requires fruitfulness and purity, and He leads us to meaningful faith and continual forgiveness. He leads us to meaningful faith and continual forgiveness. So here it is, the next morning, they're coming back from Bethany to Jerusalem. They go in the same trail, and they see the fig tree. It's now withered away all the way to its roots. This went from a very lively tree full of leaves to now visibly dead. The tree is now more honest than it was before, and Peter looks at it, and he goes, Wow! Rabbi, look! It worked! What's interesting is there's many other places in Mark where the disciples have marveled at a miracle and Jesus has said, oh, you of little faith. But here he doesn't. He doesn't have a rebuke. His tone takes on teaching. He's wanting to teach them about the kingdom and what it means to walk with the Lord in prayer. To correct the lack of prayer that was happening within the temple. And so he says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass and it will be done for him. Have this constant foundation of faith. He points them to this constant foundation. Believe in God. Have faith in God. It is necessary for your fruitfulness. You will not be fruitful without this constant foundation. Trust in His promises, knowing that they are completely and fully based on Him. 
Not just that you will get the result, but that God your Father will be active in your life. When we move forward with faith as this constant foundation, it is, a, it is an important part of moving us from just busyness and doing busy work to actually being fruitful in our walks. And I want to point out, prayer is not a special power. This passage gets abused so much. You tell those mountains in your life to move and they're going to move. I wonder how many people have walked up to the mountain that Jesus was pointing to here and tried to cast it into the sea. Again, God is not reckless with his power. He's not giving us the force as though we are all Jedis, although I think we all wish he would. But he, he is calling us in prayer to come to him who is the ultimate power and the, and the only God who can do it. And turning in prayer is a step of faith where you're facing this problem and you say, God, only you can help me with and then fill in the blank. God, only you provide the solution for my family, for my job. Only you provide the solution for this health crisis I'm facing. God, only you are able. And then we walk in the confidence of who God is. And this is something we have to tell ourselves adamantly, that we have to preach it to ourselves in the morning. Who God is, that he has saved us, that in all you go through in a given week or month, that you are not strong enough to do this without the Lord, but he is enough. Don't believe the lie that God will never give you more than you can handle. Instead, believe fully the promise that God is with you and capable of everything. Believe the promise that he loves you. Believe the promise that his mercies are new every morning. Pray in faith about your trials. And then Jesus does this, what feels almost like a hard left to us, but it's straight on. Move, in, move forward in confidence with God praying in confidence, knowing that what you ask, it will be given. And then he goes right to forgiveness. And therefore, I tell you, therefore, having this faith and praying in this faith, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you will have it and you will receive it. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. That's the end of verse 25. If you look down, you see it goes to 27. And there might be a little number there that takes you to the bottom of the page where there's like two-point font. And it says, some manuscripts add verse 26, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you. It is not that the final editors of Mark were like, we'd rather do without this verse, let's make an excuse. This points us to one, the confidence of the text we have here, that there's a lot of work that went into this and a lot of, of research and a lot of work through ancient manuscripts. So we, there's this embarrassing ab abundance of ancient manuscripts for the Bible when you compare it to other ancient texts. And, and there were a few points where not all the texts lined up. And so we have a few places in our Bibles where we see these kind of subnotes. 
But I also want to say, if you put verse 26 in there, it would only be in consistency with what we see in other parts of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. The gospel is not static. This is the gospel applied. When we stand forgiving and being willing to forgive for whatever's happened, that is applying the gospel to our lives. The gospel is not static. It is active. And this is a purity issue. That we can't walk with the Lord and hold hatred and contempt for other people in our hearts. We can't do both at the same time. And I know some terrible things have happened to some of you. Things that feel impossible to forget. And what I want you to do is I want you for a moment to think of what the Lord has forgiven you of. And I want you to think of what the Lord has forgiven throughout history. That Paul for example, was a persecutor of the church, or David killed one of his friends so he could have his friend's wife. And the Lord is capable of forgiving. And know how big the grace of God is that has saved you. And how undeserving you were of that grace. We don't just forgive because someone tells us to. We forgive out of gratitude for what the Lord has done for us. We forgive out of trust. I think it's pretty appropriate that right after using this example of a miracle of literally moving a mountain that he goes to forgiveness. Because a lot of times, forgiving someone who has deeply hurt you can almost feel smaller than moving a mountain. But it is a step of trust. It is not minimizing your pain, but applying the gospel to your pain and applying your pain to the cross and, and, and then setting your pain before God and saying, God, I am going to forgive this and let you be the one who finds justice in this situation. Praying in faith, forgiving and seeking forgiveness, both horizontally among other people and vertically between us and the Lord, will naturally take us to fruitfulness and purity. Now this, this started with some pretty strong rebukes from Jesus. Killing the tree and completely disrupting the temple. And this text has a very confrontational tone on issues of purity and forgiveness and fruitfulness. And so as the praise team comes forward, what we want to do is provide some time for you to respond 
provide some time for you to um, for you to sit with this confrontation that the Lord would have. And um, and so we want you to reflect. Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there an area you're not trusting the Lord? Have you been concerned more with the appearance of life than actually walking with the Lord and clinging to Him? Is there something you need to repent of? And then in faith, is there something you need to ask the Lord for? And so we're going to take a couple of songs and and we invite you just to to sit in this and reflect in this. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to You in need. And we come to you out of need for you to be the one who acts in us for fruit, for you to be the one who enables us to forgive, for you to be the one who moves in our lives, God, because we are just completely incapable, I know I am, of doing what you've set before us. Lord, would you draw out of us the fruit that you desire, and would you work in us to bring the purity and the holiness that brings you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.